You brought your Bible with you to church, right? That is still essential equipment around here. I need you to open it to two different places. Let's set up a little bit in our Bibles. First of all, find Exodus chapter 33. Once you get there, stick your husband's finger there and turn back to Psalm chapter 34. There's actually one other place that we'll get to before we go. We're going to preach the whole Bible this morning in 30 minutes. If we can pull that off, it will be a miracle. As you're finding your place in the Bible, I want to put you in the Wayback Machine for a moment and take you back to the very first worship service that was, at the time, Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. We were meeting at North Point Elementary School on a basketball floor. How many of you were with me in that service? I see you. I see those weary hands. These people have been carrying weight for about 11 years now. I want to remind you of the very first words that were spoken in the very first worship service, in the very first place of worship of our church. This is what I said on February the 8th, 2009. Today is a historic day. If God gives us his favor We will often look back to this day in the years to come to celebrate a healthy, growing, maturing church. Those of us on the launch team have given countless hours, thousands of dollars, and shed many tears in preparation for this day. Our motivation is not to promote ourselves, our opinions, or our creative ability. We live with a very sobering sense that we have been sent to communicate a timeless message in a timely fashion preserved forever in God's written word. We will not measure our success by attendance, dollars, or meeting felt needs. We believe the world has seen enough of the church's human efforts to impress them or to convince them that Jesus is still relevant or cool. Instead, our measure of success will be obedience to God resulting in the transformation of self-focused lives into Christ-centered lives. We simply want to be a church God can entrust with His glory. When the world sees God's glory, some will be drawn to it. Others will be repelled by it. But let it be known that God's glory is the one thing this church cannot live without. It was true in 2009. It was true in 2012 when we moved into our second worship facility. And it is still true today as we enter into a new season in a new worship space. In case you haven't noticed, we have some new tools at our disposal. Now, I don't know if you consider them tools or toys. It depends on if it's in the hands of an adult, right? If it's a tool or a toy. We've got some new tools. We've got some new tools that we're going to use to magnify Christ. But it is, all of it is useless. This worship place is useless if it is not filled with the glory of God. It can be filled with tools, it can be filled with people, 
if it is not filled with the glory of God, we are wasting our time. Today, I want to remind you of four commitments of our church. I'm going to make those commitments to you as long as I lead this church, that these will be the characteristics of our church. And I am inviting you to make those commitments together along with every other member of Gospel City Church. The first of those is this. Gospel City Church will be a place reserved exclusively for the magnification of God alone. A few days ago, as I was thinking about where God would want us to go in this service, in his word, I woke up on a Saturday morning with this verse crashing through my mind. Um, Psalm 34, verse three, look at it in your Bibles. It says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I could not wait to get back with you so that we could exalt his name together. This psalm starts out in verse one and it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Notice the, the singular pronoun there. It is, an, it is a decision of every individual whether or not they will bless the Lord. The word bless means to approve or to applaud or to bring pleasure to. You probably sometime this weekend have either sung or heard somebody sing, God bless America on 4th of July weekend. And I, I trust that God would bless America. But really the question is this, will America bless God? Will we live exclusively for the glory of God? And really, only those of us who have access to God through Jesus Christ by faith are those that know the purpose of blessing God. And those of us that bless God long for God to bless America. But it's an individual choice that you can do without gathering with anybody to bless God. It's a singular pronoun in verse one. I will, as an act of my will, as a choice, as a decision, to bless the Lord at all the good times that I experience. Is that what your Bible says? Not at good times, but at good times and bad times, all times. In times of pandemics, in times of, re of, re of recession, at times of, of polarized political opinions, we must make a choice as the people of God, as the church of God, to bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Let me ask you this question. What's been in your mouth lately? Has it been praise or has it been complaining and criticizing and moaning and belly aching that God is not being good to me? No, this psalm teaches us that it is the praise of God that is to fill my mouth at all times. Verse two says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. This is understanding that my soul in and of itself is bent toward making much of man-made things. And so we need to be careful anytime we are in a man-made thing or have a man-made thing in our hands because our soul wants to make much and boast 
of things that man makes. The psalmist here rightly says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. If there's anything to brag about, it is what God has done. This is the Lord's work. This is the Lord's church. And he alone is the one that we should boast about. Don't make much of your preacher. Don't make much of your pastor. Don't make much of your president. Make much of the Lord. And his praise will be in my mouth. And it says, let the humble hear and be glad. That's what humble people do. Humble people hear. Arrogant people talk. Humble people listen. And it makes their heart glad to hear the words of the Lord remind them that at every season, God is good and God is still in control. And that brings us to verse three, which we already cited. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Notice the shift from something I do alone, I will bless the Lord, to the invitation, come and bless the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord together. I need you to magnify the Lord with me because sometimes I don't do a very good job of magnifying the Lord and your praise helps me. I need to borrow a little bit of your magnification at times in order to get my heart right. Notice the first word of verse three. Don't miss the first word of verse three. It's not a throwaway word. Oh! Now, anybody see anything explode in the sky over the last 24 hours? Anything still exploding in the sky about two o'clock in the morning in your neighborhood as it was in mine? And you could still hear the echoes of the oohs and the ahs and the ohs. Why? Because something was impressive until your heart exalts the Lord with an O. Oh, your worship has not moved from your head to your heart. Where there is no O, there is no worship until our hearts are engaged. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Now, I, I brought a uh, magnifying glass here. Has anybody ever used one of these? You ever used one of those? You ever used one? You see that right there? Yeah. What does this do? This is a very important, important tool. It makes small things look bigger. It's a magnifying glass. Now, do you understand that it is impossible to magnify the Lord in such a way that it would make him look bigger than he already is? A magnifying glass makes small things look look big. So we don't magnify the Lord in that way. If we're going to magnify the Lord, we don't need one of these. What we need is one of these. This is a telescope. A telescope magnifies something that is already enormous, off in the distance. And when we magnify telescopically, what happens is we make something enormous look more like the reality it really is. That is the purpose of every individual Christian. Your life is a magnifying glass. When people look into your life, they are to see God for who he really is. When they look into your marriage, your marriage should magnify the Lord. And of course, when people step into this church, when they encounter Gospel City Church, they should see the Lord in the way that he really is. Everything that we are experiencing this morning is a magnifying glass. This room is nothing but a magnifying glass. Every light in this room, 
is a magnifying glass that we are using as a tool to make God look as big or as big as we can make him look like he really is. Every guitar string, every musician, every microphone, everything at our disposal, we want the world to look and see Jesus. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Verse four says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my troubles. Is that what your Bible says? No, it doesn't say he delivers us from his, our troubles. It says he delivers us from our fears. The world is a scary place. But you, you don't have to be afraid because the Lord will deliver you from your fears through seeking him. And then verse five, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. You see the word radiant there? Apparently, someone who magnifies the Lord is impacted by what they see, so much so that it changes us. Now, this verse in verse five here is like a hyperlink. I've taught you about this before. You ever on a web page or something, you click on a hyperlink and it sends you to another place? If you click on the word radiant, it sends you to Exodus chapter 33. I want you to turn now with me to Exodus 33 as we uh, see the second commitment that we're gonna make as a church. It's this, Gospel City Church will not be content to move forward without the presence of God. Now, before we jump into this, let me give you a little history here. Chapter 32, 33, and 34 are some of the most foundational verses in your Bible. I don't even think you can understand the Bible unless you do a deep dive into Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Let me summarize it for you. This was after God had delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Miraculously, God in his grace and sovereignty saves them, delivers them, brings them through the Red Sea, and he brings them into the wilderness, the desert. At this point where the story picks up, they are at the base of Mount Sinai. They're in the Sinai Desert. They lived there for about a year. And Moses, the leader of the Israelites, would go up and down the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God, where God was downloading for him the Ten Commandments, which would form the basis of the covenant he would make with his people. Now, while Moses was up on the mountain, God was giving him the Ten Commandments. Do you know what the people were doing at the base of the mountain? They were breaking the first and the second commandment. They were building themselves a cow out of gold to fall down and worship. And before you quickly judge them, how many things have you bowed down to this week and expressed more passion and love toward and given more attention to than the Lord? That's an idol. So that's what the people of God are always tempted to do, to forget God and to give the best of their attention, their emotion, and their stuff to things that are not as important as God. So that was what was happening at the base of the mountain. Now, that was a great sin. Moses comes down out of the mountain. He rebukes them for their sin. I want you to look at the last two verses of verse 30 of chapter 32. You see it here? Uh, Exodus 32, verses 34, God is speaking to Moses and he says, but now go. 
Moses, I want you to go. I want you to lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Speaking of the promised land, you've heard of that, right? The, the, the promised land that he'd promised. He says, behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day that I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Verse 35, and the Lord sent a plague. I, I know you can't relate to that. I, I know you've never heard of such a thing. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Now, now please understand, not every plague is a direct judgment from God. But should you ever face a plague, it would be wise to ask yourself, is God trying to get my attention? Is God trying to turn my heart from worshiping lesser things to worshiping him? Because there's a pattern in scripture of God using plagues. And so if, if just hypothetically, if you're ever in a plague, you might want to examine the true condition of your heart. Now, chapter 33, God continues the conversation with Moses. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob saying, to your offspring I will give it. Verse two, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Clearly not a whole 30 diet. It's not biblical at all. And just, I need to be on whole 30. But anyway, this was not, a this was not the 30 day experience here. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not Go. He tells him three different times, go, go, go. And then he says, I'm not going with you. He says, go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. You know what a stiff-necked person is? It's one, your neck is so stiff, it won't it won't bend, it won't bow, a stiff-necked people. Now, think about what's happening here. God is promising them that he will provide for them a place, a land, a nation. He promises them this people will have great power. He's gonna give them an angel for crying out loud to defeat all of their enemies, to, to, to remove all of their obstacles. And then he promises to give them prosperity. You're gonna have milk and honey. I will give you a place. I will give you power. I will give you prosperity. But I will not give you my presence. Now let me ask you a question. Would you be content for God to give you a wonderful place to gather as a church, to have power to defeat all your enemies, all your rivals, all the bullies at school and all the people that want to steal stuff from you and, and you could win every election, your candidate got, got, you know, won the election, got in office. 
And then prosperity, you had more money you knew what to do with, you drove better cars than than you've ever driven before. But God was nowhere to be found. You sensed such distance in your life. That's why we're making this commitment. Gospel City Church will not be content to go forward without the presence of God. You see, there's a judgment that is more severe than a plague. It's when God removes the plague and replaces it by removing his presence. And by God's grace, we as a church must be as desperate for the presence of God as we have ever been. Buildings and budgets and tools and worship and lights, they do not accomplish anything when the presence of God is not near. Look at verse seven. Moses wasn't content to live without the presence of God, and that's why in verse seven, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. You don't need a big building, just a tent. You can meet with God in a tent. He says, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Skip down to verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It was a merciful act of God to condescend to the level of a human being and speak to him on an intimate level. What an incredibly gracious act that God would condescend to meet. Moses called the meeting and God showed up. Remember, God is dealing with a stiff-necked people that he says, I don't even like to be around them. But Moses calls a meeting, God shows up. Then look at verse 14. Moses, God said, my presence will go with you. God heard the intercession of Moses. He says, I will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. Now, we have to understand something about the presence of God, right? Everybody knows God is, is everywhere present at the same time. Do you know that? There's nowhere that you can go from God's presence. Psalm chapter 139 says that. If I go to the highest hill, you're there. If I descend to the deepest ocean, you're there. God is everywhere present at the same time, right? We know that. God is not bound by time and space like we are. That's what we call, that's what theologians call the omnipresence of God. But there's also something the Bible tells us about the cultivated presence of God. Jesus himself says, wherever two or three are what? Gathered. There's our word. That's why it's so important that we gather. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Does that mean Jesus wasn't there with just one? No, it just means that we can cultivate the presence of God when we intentionally seek him together. So there's the omnipresence of God, there's the cultivated presence of God, but then thirdly, the Bible speaks of the manifest presence of God. That's where God has captured the attention of every space in your brain where every competing influence seems so insignificantly small 
including viruses and recessions and all the different political opinions. The manifest presence of God is what we need. And so Moses seeks it. As a matter of fact, he continues to seek it. And here's the third commitment that we're going to make is Gospel City Church. It's this, Gospel City Church will be distinguished by the glory of God. Gospel City Church will be distinguished by the glory of God. Look at verse 16. We're still in Exodus 33. For how shall it be known, this is Moses speaking, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And he answers his own question, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct from every other people on the planet? And Moses and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. What is the glory of God? Glory is a hard word to define. It's it's easier to define the word basketball than it is to define the word beauty. It's a different concept, right? The glory of God is a, is a word, the glory, it comes from the word that means weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, did I spell that right? It means weighty, it means heavy. In the presence of God, you feel the weightiness of his presence. And this is what God makes known about himself. Do you know that as human beings, we don't know everything there is about God? We only know that which God has chosen to reveal about himself. And God, as a gracious God that owes us nothing, has graciously chosen to give us a self-disclosure of who he is. Moses knew the face of God. You know somebody's by their face. We even have facial recognition software now that tells you who this person is. And so, Knowing a face is knowing something about their attributes. The glory of God is known through his attributes. As a matter of fact, we can see his attributes. If you keep going in the story, finally in Exodus 34, just look at verses 6 and 7. Now, as we read these things, I want you to know these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, are quoted over 20 times through the story of the scripture. Would you consider these verses pretty important? Yes. Here's what God has chosen to reveal about himself to stiff-necked people like you and me. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now, if you notice in your Bible, the, the words are all in caps when it says the Lord. That's the formal name of God. The, word, the name is Yahweh. Not only did he show him his face, he told him his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin without clearing the guilty. How do you do that? It's an impossibility until you understand the glory is not just the glory of His mercy, the glory of His grace, the glory of His patience, the glory of His love, the glory of His faithfulness, the glory of His judgment. It's going to be resolved in the glory of His Son who one day, though He was innocent, was treated by God the Father as if He was guilty. He didn't clear the guilt He judged the guilt on Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross so that he could forgive and show mercy and grace to all of us as stiff-necked people. That is the glorious nature of God. Now listen, if you saw all of the glory of God, you would have a problem. Because as a stiff-necked people, do you know what would happen? Your face would melt off. That's how glorious God is. When we, and if he doesn't seem that glorious to you, if you can yawn your way through scripture like that, you need one of these. You need to understand and magnify the glory of his grace and his forgiveness and his love and his patience and his judgment, all those different things. Now again, I want you to skip down a little bit. Look at verse 29 because, Just knowing about this is not impressive. But he goes on to explain how glorious this is. As a matter of fact, I want to give you a little lesson here. There's been a lot of talk about face coverings. Have you heard a thing or two about face coverings? How many of you have an opinion or heard an opinion about face coverings in the last few days, right? Listen, listen, did you know that there's a story about face coverings in the Bible? Really? Skip down to verse 29. It's right here. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, remember he went up there to meet, from, meet with God face to face? When Moses came down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know with the skin of his face, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Remember the radiant people? Those who seek him are radiant. Moses sought him, and the skin of his face glowed as he came down the mountain. The problem was he came down down from the holiness of God's glory into a stiff-necked, unholy people. And that's why verse 30 says, Aaron, the guy that led the building of the, the idol, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses, do not come within six feet of me. I might catch something, that thing on your face. It's glowing and it might incinerate me. Skip down again, verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel that he was what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. What in the world is that all about? 
Fourth commitment of Gospel City Church. Gospel City Church will be a place where disciples are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, there's a lot of questions about what is going on there in, verse, in, in Exodus 33. God is so good, he wants us to understand the Bible so much that if you flip way over to 2 Corinthians, chapter three, you're welcome to do that right now. I'm gonna throw some verses up here on the screen in just a minute. But in 2 Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul actually gives us a commentary on what was happening way back in the second book of the Bible about this face covering. And this is what we read in 2 Corinthians three, verse 13. Now, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now listen, there's two reasons to wear, there's two motivations to wear face coverings. When I was a kid, I used to love to get dressed up for trick-or-treat, and I'd put on a mask, and I would get my best Spider-Man mask out, or my best Bat Batman mask on, and I'd pretend, and you ask me, who are you? I'm Batman, right? So, I, I, because I had a mask, I'd... I, could pretend to be somebody I wasn't. Now listen, Christians should never wear masks to pretend. That, that's what Jesus called hypocrites. Don't, don't be a hypocrite. That's, that's what keeps people away from church. But there's another reason to wear a mask, and that is to protect. And so I don't want to get sick. I don't want you to get sick. I don't want my kids to get sick. So we, we put a face covering on. And so Here's another part of what we need to understand about a face covering. Now, whatever you believe about, you know, a physical protection that, that a face covering provides, please understand this. There is no physical face covering that can protect you from the glory of God's holiness. If you were to enter into God's holiness uncovered, you would immediately be incinerated because you and I are stiff-necked people in the presence of a holy God. So how does a holy God meet with a stiff-necked people? We need a covering. And the Apostle Paul is telling us here that that face covering that Moses wore, he wore it to protect them temporarily because God's judgment was coming, but it was pointing to something greater, something that could provide greater protection. That face covering on Moses' face was a gracious, merciful provision to spare the people from judgment. But Moses, even though he could pray for them and talk to them, he couldn't ultimately protect them because he was a, sti a stiff-necked sinner too. There needed to be a better Moses. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom for what? 
Not freedom to do whatever you wanna do. Not freedom to have a backyard barbecue if you want. Not even just the freedom to worship, but the freedom to enter into the presence of God without being judged. And he tells us the only way to have that covering is turning to Christ. Christ has done something permanently that Moses' face covering only did temporarily. Because Christ is the covering for our sin, looking intently at the glory of Christ brings life rather than death. And that's why this morning we magnify the Lord. Turn, look at him, see him on the cross, see his mercy and his grace and his love for you. Only Christ can remove the veil that is over our hearts. Only Christ can make stiff-necked people bow in humility, seeking him for grace. This is the great news of the gospel. We no longer need a veil to shield us from the glory of God. We no longer have to be afraid of the glory of God. There is such a greater glory in Christ than anything that was offered through the law or through Moses or the Old Testament. We can come near into God's presence without fearing being judged. Christ has made the glory of God accessible to stiff-necked sinners like you and me. Christ is our covering, not a stupid mask. This is good news for all of us who know how sinful and stiff-necked we are. And what happens when we get in the presence of God? Last verse, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is spirit. Understand this, every time we gather is an opportunity to gaze into the glory of Christ. Every encounter with Christ changes me, it transforms me. Every gathering in the church is meant to be a transforming encounter with the glory of God. And we never encounter God without being unchanged. Listen, if you leave church today and you are not in some way changed, you did not have an encounter with the glory of God. You just went to church. You may have encountered some nice people, You might have even felt nice while you were here. But if there was not some degree of transformation, you didn't meet Christ. Christ longs to meet with stiff-necked people who will humble themselves and seek him for the covering for their sin. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is slow to anger. He is patient, ready to meet with anyone who will repent and believe the truth of the gospel. Would you just bow your heads right there where you're at? I wanna give you a moment to seek the Lord. So much is new, so many things for us to be distracted by, but I trust and I have prayed that God would show us his glory in such a way that we 
could not leave the same. Are you humble enough to admit that your neck is pretty stiff? Are you humble enough to admit that it seems that you have a tendency to magnify everything else and minimize Christ? Every time you turn on the news, every time you watch a movie, every time you look at a screen, somebody's trying to magnify something to you. And if you've spent hours this week magnifying your problems or magnifying solutions, it could be that you've missed the very thing. that you need to magnify. Don't you call out to him right now. Ask him to forgive what you've magnified that is so much less glorious than Christ. And if you're here today and you've never had a life-transforming encounter with Christ, at the end of the service, there'll be pastors at the heads of these aisles. They would love to pray for you. They would love to speak with you and help you be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Father in heaven, thank you for the covering that is Christ. Thank you for the protection from your wrath that is provided by your grace through Christ. Convince us of your glory. And God, put within us desires to magnify Christ and Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.